actually. We're finishing our study in Acts today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. I want to encourage you to take a Bible there in front of you or on your version app, whichever Bible app you use, and follow along with us. We have been in Acts chapters 1 through 12 this summer, and um, we will pick Acts 13 and through the end of the book up next year, next summer. We'll finish it up next year. But today we're going to finish with Acts chapter 12. Next Sunday we're going to have a one-off sermon, Psalm 73, if you want to be reading ahead, Psalm 73, love that passage. Um, We'll be looking at that. And then the next two Sundays, Pastor Kevin and I will be doing a tandem series on finances. So we're looking ahead toward the fall, the fall. Can you believe that? (laughs) Already. But anyway, we're in Acts chapter 12 today, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter. Let's look there in Acts chapter 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, when it says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. There were three kinds of captivity in the Bible, three examples of it. Now with Egypt you had slavery, but that was not captivity of, of defeat. You have three kinds of captivity in the Bible. First off, you have Assyria, who came in and took part of Israel captive. They took them off into Assyria. That's Nineveh. And so when God went to Jonah and said, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach, and he, it'd be like telling us, I want you to go to Baghdad and preach. Let me pray about that. No. That's why he went the other way. And what Assyria did was they came into the defeated province, picked everybody up, took them back to Assyria, and split them up all over the empire. Their goal was not only to defeat the nation, but to destroy the culture. Okay? The second kind of captivity was what Babylon did. Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and all those guys. <coughs> what they did was they came, they defeated the people, they picked the people up, they took them to Babylon, and then they would move them like chess pieces around in the empire. They allowed them to maintain their national, their cultural identity, but they moved them around, and then they would take somebody from another part of the world that they had defeated and bring them into Israel, and Israel had been moved up there. And so they just kind of played uh, checkers with everybody. They allowed them to maintain their cultural identity, though. But the third kind of captivity is what we have with Rome. Rome said, you know, it's kind of expensive moving all these people, so what we're going to do is instead of moving all them, we're going to leave them there, and we're going to move in a governor. We're going to move in someone who represents us, represents Rome in that place, and we will govern our defeated peoples that way. Herod is one of those guys. Herod works for Rome. He is a governor over Israel, and he is not a nice guy. Now, there are a bunch of Herods in the Bible, okay? And we read about Herod, and we think, good grief, this guy lived for a long time. Well, there are four different Herods in the Bible, and one Herodias, one woman named Herod. And that's not all of them. I mean, those are just the ones that are in the Bible. This family likes the name Herod. Now, Herod is two words, one of which means in the form of, to be viewed as, and the other is the first four letters of the word, hero. They, they thought of themselves as hero. It's as much a title as it is a name. Some of them got the name. Some of them got the title. Well, when the Bible talks about Herod, we're talking about four different people. And they just kept using the name over and over. It's kind of like George Foreman. You know, George Foreman has like 58 kids, and 56 of them are named George. You know what I'm saying? He has five sons. It's George Jr., George III, fourth, fifth, and sixth. has two daughters, George, one of two of his daughters, are Georgette and, and Frida George. He said, why did you name all your kids George? He said, I've been hit in the head by Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, Kenny Norton, and Evander Holyfield. See how many names you remember. Okay, I get it. Okay, I can go with that. 
But Herod, they just keep using his name over and over. So it gets kind of confusing. And when you look at that family, it is a confusing thing. The first one that we see in the New Testament is a dude called Herod the Great. He's a, he, was, he was called great not because he was a nice guy and not even because he was a great ruler because really he was neither. He was not a nice person at all. Augustus Caesar, the Emperor Augustus, said, I would rather be Herod's hog. I'd have a better chance of life. This guy killed everybody. When he knew he was about to die, he corralled thousands of Jews into the circus, the great arena up in Jericho, and ordered their death uh, on the day that he died to ensure mourning in Judea. Well, there would have been mourning. Uh, his survivors freed them. He had ten wives. He murdered most of them. He had a bunch of his kids murdered, one of them just five days before he died himself. He was not a nice person. This is the guy who, in Matthew chapter 2, ordered the execution, the murder of the babies down in Nazareth. Okay, I mean in Bethlehem, I'm sorry, in Bethlehem, when Jesus was born. So he's not named great because he's a nice guy. He's named great because of his massive building undertakings. He built massive, massive things. In fact, the two largest stones in the history of construction are under his rule. There's one of them. That stone is 40 feet long, this guy that has the really bald head. And then there's another dude down there. That's 40 feet. That is the, um, that's the west wall of the uh, Temple Mount thing weighed 440 tons and then the next one show that next picture this is how close the seam is on these things and then the next stone these are the two largest stones in history of construction that's the next one it's 60 feet long weighed 660 tons and those things are upwards of 90 feet off the ground that's a that's great right who built that herod great that's why he's called herod the great other than that he was a pretty rotten fellow according to history when Herod died, worms were expressing themselves from him, his body in most fascinating ways we will not talk about on Sunday in church. He died a miserable death. And when his servants saw him dying, nobody would go near him. They let him die. It was horrible. The next Herod is a dude named Herod Antipas. Um, he is the guy who had John the Head, John the Head be baptized, John the Baptist beheaded. Um, at the conniving of his stepdaughter Salome and his wife Herodias, there's the name again. Um, he also tried to have Jesus murdered in Luke chapter 13, and he is the Herod that Pilate is sending Jesus back and forth to during the mockery of a trial over in Luke chapter 23. He and his wife Herodias were eventually banished to Spain. They incurred the wrath of the emperor, and they were banished to Spain. And that's where they died. Now, the next Herod is who we're talking about today. This is our Herod for today. He's the grandson of Herod the Great, and he learned from his ancestors. He learned from his ancestors how to rule with brutality, to gain favor of some and fear in others. And here's what he did. Look there in verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, see, that's that right there. He's trying to curry favor with these people. That's the reason Herod the Great built the temple. He's trying to curry favor with the Jews. Okay, I'm going to rule here, but I want to keep you mildly happy. So he, he put one guy in as high priest just so he could marry the dude's daughter. He sold off the high priesthood to, to sold his daughter to the priesthood. And so he has learned, our Herod has learned, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in the prison. 
delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the Jews. So this is the third Herod. The fourth Herod is the Herod Agrippa, who Paul argues his case in front of in Acts chapter 25 and 26. He's the one who looked at Paul in, 20, in Acts 26, 28 and said, Do you think that in such a short amount of time you can convert me? That's this guy's, our guy today, his son. So our guy for today, he's the third Herod, and he's playing with the lives of people. He's throwing Peter in jail for the benefit that it can get him. He's, he's messing with people's lives for his own benefit. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of you guys are boss. This is a rotten thing to do, okay? But he has a problem that he didn't even know about yet. Look there in verse 5. Here it is. So Peter was kept in prison, but, here's his problem, earnest prayer was made to God, made for him, was made to God by the church. He didn't know that was in there. Verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell, he struck Peter in the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. Chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. I think it's kind of funny that Peter had, had to be told every move he made. The angel struck him. Wake up. It's interesting. He struck, he's asleep the night before his execution. He's asleep and had to be struck. We're going to see that word again here in a minute. I wonder if that might be a little bit of some of that peace that passes understanding. You're going to get a good move asleep the night before. But look, he had to be told every move to make. Get up quickly. Verse 8, dress yourself. Put on your sandals. Wrap your cloak around you. Inhale. Exhale. Follow me. Is this guy dumb? What is Peter's problem here? Verse 9 went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Oh, now we can lighten up on Peter. It's not that he's stunned. It's not that he's slow. It's that he's, he's had visions before. He had a vision just a couple of chapters ago, didn't he? Over in chapter 10, when the sheet loaded with all kinds of unclean animals was lowered to him, and um, he had every reason to be confused. Well, maybe this is just another one of those. And was what was happening in chapter 10 real? No. It was a vision. Did it have a very real message behind it? Yes, it did. And so it's easy to understand that he's thinking, oh, well, maybe this is another one of those. Verse 9, no, when he realized uh, it, was, it was real, he thought he had been seeing a vision. A hundred years ago, a thousand miles away, we were in church one night. I was holding one of my kids in the second cabin. And I was holding him like this, and he had, he had his head turned back that way. And I'm kind of like, the words are up here, buddy. He's got his thumb in his mouth, so he's not old enough to read the words. Well, one of them might be, but um, he's not paying any attention. And I keep looking. He keeps saying it back that way. And I said, what, what, what's up? And he plunked his thumb out of his mouth and said, an angel. Put his thumb back in his mouth. I said, dude, what? Plunked his thumb. An angel. And I told Donna. You know, I wish I could have gone back. <laughs> wish we could go back. It had been cool to walk over there and hold the kid up and see what happened. 
Because he looked over in that corner for the rest of the service. Oh, well, it's just one thing. Oh, well, okay. No, it wasn't. He put tears to our children, and then he ended up in the entertainment business. And all the things that Peter had seen and started to see in him, he did not know what was being done by those who were healing him. He had no clue. Look there at verse 9. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting of me. Now Moses immediately responded, Man, I've got to tell somebody about what just happened to Peter. Look at verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of Simon, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Now, we're going to see this guy, John Mark, next year, all the way through the book of Acts. We're going to see him next. He's the one who traveled with Paul and Barnabas. He was Barnabas' cousin over in Colossians chapter 4, and he went with them on their first journey for a time. But when they got down to the district called Pamphylia, he, he abandoned them in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. And so Paul said, yeah, I don't trust this guy anymore. And that the, the split over what they're going to do with John Mark is the stated reason in Acts chapter 15 for Paul and Barnabas splitting up. What's that going to do about him? He's a pretty important fellow. Here's the happy ending to that story. What, what happened at the end of Paul's life concerning John Mark? You remember? Yeah, he's a good guy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 21. It's John Mark, 21. The angel left him. I appreciate that. It's been very useful to me in my life. So, Peter goes to John Mark's mother's home, Mary. That's where the church is meeting. Verse 13, look there. And when he had knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. You don't see too many Rhodas anymore. That's a nice name. It means rose. So there you go. There's some advice. Or verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, This kills me. I'm sorry. This just cracks me up. We're going to pray for something and then fully expect it to never happen? Boy, if that ain't if that ain't lack of faith, I don't know what is, man. No, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, what? Poor Peter. It's his angel. praying all this time, and now he's dead. Now, man, I can't help but wonder about the other guys, the other guys of Scripture. She, she, she fascinates me. I, I can't help but wonder, was she, a, was she a captive? Was she an illegal alien? Has she been hired out of the Home Depot parking lot? Was she a Christian? Was she a believer? Was she praying also? Or was she completely lost watching these crazy people in there praying that somebody would be delivered from Herod's jail? What, what's going on with her? I love the other guys of the Bible. How about those four guys who lowered their friend down? What happened to those guys? It'll be cool to find out. Hold on. I want to find out who this Rhoda was. What was she into? Was she a part of the prayer meeting, or was she just busy polishing the silver? Listen to these crazy people in there. Speak in faith. Oh, God, in Jesus' name, deliver Peter. 
buying them and re-releasing them. And then he's standing at the door. I just I, I wonder wonder what his response was. And then when she considered continued to insist, he sent out. What did she think when they said, "Oh, he's dead"? Not only are you crazy now, okay, now he's dead. It's going to be interesting to find out what other what <laughs> story about those around us who see us praying and see us fully prepared for the very opposite of what we're praying. Pray for Steve Barker. He's sitting back there crying. Double stroke, clot on one side, a bleed on the other. And he's sitting back there crying. He said, I need to get back on my bike. He did not mean his cancer. Okay. So he didn't keep praying. What happened to watching thereunto in Ephesians 6, 18? Watch there. What, what happened to Colossians 4, 2? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Keep an eye on it. What are you praying for? Keep an eye on it. See what happens with it. Well, maybe those hadn't been written yet, but... It is interesting to see the quick response of the church that this little girl, this servant girl, is out of her mind, and then that, well, he must be dead after all, when she insisted in her joy, is what it says, that their prayer had been answered. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened and saw him, they, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Which is, if you look at that, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And with that, Peter and the Lord died also. That's a pretty interesting ending. Peter has been in every chapter of the book of Acts up until this point except chapter 6 and 7. Now, chapter 6 is where they're setting apart the servants who are going to take care of the ministry to the, to the poor and the widows. And then Stephen is, is captured. And chapter 7 is Stephen's defense and his stoning. I think it's kind of an unwritten rule. If you get stoned in the Bible, you get the whole chapter. Okay? Back then. So we see Peter in every chapter of the book of Acts up until now, and we do not see him again the rest of the book of Acts except one time in chapter 15 where at the Jerusalem council they're trying to figure out what to do with all these Gentiles that are getting saved, and, P and Peter stands up and says, look, you know God's given you the gospel. And other than that, he's written out, and obviously, certainly, the author of Acts is going to be traveling with Paul from now on, basically, Luke. And he might not have been around too much of Peter and his ministry, but it's just an interesting way how he could be written out of a storyline. Then he departed and went to another place. Verse 17. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Now, who, who is James? It said up in verse 2, He killed James, the brother of John. Did Peter not know about that? No, he didn't know about that. And this is probably, we don't know for certain, but it's probably referring to James, the brother of Jesus, who um, probably was a minister there at the church in Jerusalem and probably wrote the book of James. We don't have any kind of evidence of that, but that's, that's what's assumed. I'm sure we get James. But it's certainly not James, the brother of John, because he's already been killed in verse 6. So the next morning, verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Imagine that. Don't you love the understatement of the Bible? There's no little disturbance. But how frustrating would it have been for Herod? 
Here, look in verse 4. He had delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Four quaternium is, is the word that's used. Four of four, which is how many? A sixteen. Handed him over to sixteen soldiers. Okay, look, I got this one schmo, and I got sixteen of him. Keep an eye on him. And the next morning, Herod, there's no little disturbance among the soldiers. Yeah, imagine that, because they know what's coming. There have been 16 of them charged with the responsibility of keeping an eye on him. In fact, look there in verse 6. This is a very common practice with high-value prisoners in the day. Sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Very common practice. But it's not the last time it's going to happen in the book of Acts. Remember over in Acts, over chapter 16, Paul's in prison. They're keeping the neighbors awake, him and Silas, and singing at midnight. One of the guards is so tired he finally falls asleep, and then that earthquake, right? Chains fall off. And what does the guard do in chapter 16? Do you remember? He pulled out his sword to kill himself. Why? He knew what happened that day. Look there in verse 19. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was captured. He ordered that they be put to death because that was just that was just SOP. If you lose a high-valued prisoner, you get the punishment that they were going to get. And so the guard over in chapter 16 is going to kill himself now with a sword rather than having to wait till morning and think about it all night. It's not the last time this is going to happen. And it says that he went from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Did he mention this guy's not a nice guy? Verse 20, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one force, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. He's talking about Caesarea by the sea. Now, I get a point if someone gets that. Caesarea from the sea, you see where the red comes down and it makes that little peak to the left and comes straight down. That's Caesarea by the sea. Down a little farther, right there, way that far. That's Caesarea by the sea. They stood at that place. They stood at the, they stood at the circus, the arena that, that Herod was at that day. It's an amazing place. And Tyre and Sidon are on the coast. They're north of Caesarea, up a little farther. One more, that's Tyre, and up one more over to the coast, that's Sidon. There in Phoenicia, that area loops down. It comes down and then loops over to the west, just north of uh, Caesarea there. Oh, thank you for coming up behind me quickly. I appreciate that more than you know. <coughs> okay, the chill bumps are going to calm down. There's Tyre, there's Sidon, there's Caesarea by the sea, Tyre and Sidon. And what had happened was this district, Phoenicia, was uh, depended on Israel and probably some other provinces for their food. They are, those are two major seaport towns. They, they deal in trade and merchandise, and they don't have time for agriculture. They'd rather buy their food. They would rather eat out, see, than cook at the house because they can spend their time, but they would be spending cooking doing other things. And so he goes up to Phoenicia. Now, Jesus had gone up to this region one time during his ministry. It's called during the period of withdrawals. It's covered in Mark chapter 7 when the Syrophoenician woman came to him and asked him to heal. 
Rachel and her family, <coughs> that's up in this district. Um, but they had they had been getting their food from other places, including and particularly Israel, for hundreds of years. In Ezekiel 27, when he takes up his lament against, when he prophesies against Tyre and Sidon, one of the things it says is, Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise. Here's what they paid you with. Wheat, menace, the wheat of menace, meal, honey, oil, and balm. They gave you your food for your merchandise. They've been doing this for hundreds of years. All the way back to the time of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 5, he traded, he gave them their food for the merchandise that came in. So this, this is not uncommon. And now Herod, this crazy guy, okay, he has his finger not only on the button with one hand, but his finger on the other hand is on their food supply. So if you've got a guy who's not only crazy with a finger on the button, but also in charge of your food, you want to keep the crazy guy happy, right? So they come to him. They have talked to his chamberlain. Let us get in there, and we'll plead our case. We'll do whatever he says. Please don't starve us out. And there was a historian named Josephus who was a Jew. He was from Israel. He was hired by the Romans to write the history of his own people. And Josephus said that Herod had gone up to Caesarea to engage in a feast, a festival to honor the emperor. And on the second day of that feast, came into the, to the, the arena, which we have stood in. It's just an amazing thing. Came into that arena in a robe made out of silver thread. And when the sun hit that silver thread, it was an amazing sight. He stood up and made a speech. And it says in verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. What Josephus writes is very similar to this. There are your royal robes made out of silver thread, and he's just dazzling. And when they lauded him, they're trying to appeal to him, listen, don't cut off our food. We'll call you a God and not a man if that's what it takes. The Bible says that an angel of the Lord struck him down. Now, there's a little bit of a difference, there's a lot of bit of a difference between Herod's encounter with an angel and Peter's encounter with an angel. It's the same word, struck him down. It said that the angel struck Peter on the side to wake him up. He must have been a deep sleeper. It's the same word. But look at the different effect of it. With Peter, it woke him up, got him up, got him out, and it, it woke him out of his sleep, and with Herod, it put him to sleep. And he died in a very similar way as his grandfather, Herod the Great, had died, with worms eating him and breathing his last a miserable, miserable. because, verse 23, he did not give God the glory. That's not a smart thing to do. It's not a smart thing to do to think that we are the source of our own advancement. We are the source of our own abilities. We are the source of our own accomplishments. Friends, you didn't start it. You didn't come by it. Your looks, your abilities, your mind, your talents, everything that you have has been given to you by God. You could have been born in a hut in Africa, dining out on grub worms. 
you were born where you were, and God gave you what you have. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. And for us to think that I, I am the product of my own ability is to steal the glory that God has reserved for himself alone and it's to, uh, uh, it's to make us forget that all of us have sinned. We have come short of what? The glory of God. That's not ours to claim. And any benefit, any advancement that we have in our lives is because God has blessed us. He is the one that tells us, we're going to look at this in a couple of weeks when we talk about finances, He is the one who has given you the ability to produce, in, uh, produce wealth. He's the one who gave you the ability to produce income. He's the one who gave you the ability to start a business, to go to work for somebody, to keep a job going. He's the one who gave you that ability. And any time that we look at that ability and think that we are the source and continuation of it, we're taking glory away from Him. There is something good, there's something beneficial about every now and then just stopping and saying, wow, thanks. And Herod forgot to do that. Another, there's somebody else in the Bible who forgot to do that. Over in Isaiah chapter 14, somebody said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. I love just the simplicity and once again understatement of the Bible when the very next verse says, but you were brought down to Sheol. far reaches of the pit. doesn't matter how high you think you're going to go. I, I'll set myself, <laughs> I'll make myself like the most high. Okay, knock yourself out. Let's see how that works out. Bam. <laughs> and Satan fell. Has somebody else in Daniel who thought they were going to do the same thing. That <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, he's walking out on his balcony one day on his roof. says in Daniel 4, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Shouldn't have said that. While the words were still in the king's mind, there fell a voice from heaven. Immediately judgment was pronounced. The very next verse, you shall be driven from among men until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he will. And immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And we look at that and go, well, that sounds weird. Well, it does, but there's a word for it. There's a word for everything. There's a word for it. It's boanthropy. It's the psychological misconception that you are a bovine. There's also called uh, something called like uh, lycanthropy, that's where you think you're a wolf. And people with boanthropy, they think they're a cow or an ox, and so they start crawling around on all four, which your body is not made for that. Cows are it's okay for cows. Your body is not designed to do that. And they start eating grass, and they moo a lot. That's why I stay away from salad plates. I'm just being safe. It's a psychological disorder that does happen still occasionally. They put them on a TV show now. So here's the difference between Herod, egotism, and Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> Yet Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. It says, At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. 
blessed him with power and authority to bind with him who was to bind. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble, said the guy who just a few days earlier was kneeling at the throne of Darius. He is able to humble. So our Herod died <coughs> a miserable death, just like his grandfather had. Replaced by Agrippa. And here's the result of Herod being taken out of the way. Look there in verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You've, you've heard uh, when they come in, when, when there's a safari, these somebody that people are happy to see. You want to want to be happy to see you come, not just happy to see you go. With Herod, they're just happy to see you go. The result of it was that even in this, the word of God increased and multiplied. And all the way through the book of Acts, we see difficult things happening that result in the growth of God's word, the advancement, the growth, the deepening of his people, all the way to the very last word of the book, which is the word unhindered. Paul in prison, in prison. Oh, this has got to be a terrible thing. The very last word of the book of Acts in prison is unhindered. He's preaching the gospel. He has visitors coming to him. He's sharing the gospel unhindered. Because, friends, Jesus is the one who said, Mark chapter 4, what can I compare to the kingdom of God's kingdom? What, what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it grows, when it's sown, it grows up, it becomes larger than all the garden plants, puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In its shade. And friends, it can be easy to look at our culture around us today and think, oh man, Christianity's passe, it's over. And friends, the kingdom of God is expanding. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that's going to expand all over the world. How many despots have thought that by force and control they could, they could legislate the church out of existence? It's nonsense. They can't do it. Voltaire is famously quoted as having said there's some debate about it, but, but I was reading something on it this past week. It sounds like it's true. Voltaire said that in 100 years, he said, he wrote in a letter, I just regret that I will die before I get the chance to see the church eliminated forever. And 50 years later, his house was owned by the, publi the, the owner of the Bible Publishing Society in France who stored Bibles in Voltaire's home. How many despots have thought if we can just pass enough legislation? There's some who have said that the best thing that happened to the church in China was communism. Because when communism came in, the church took over. Instead of everybody from the outside coming in and doing the work, now the church inside of China took over and it just exploded in growth. When we were in Cuba the first time, <coughs> I asked the brother there, do you want us to pray for the oppression to end? He said, No. No, don't pray for the oppression then. The oppression's what's making the church grow. And isn't it fascinating that all the way through the book of Acts, no matter who it is, no matter the tyrant, no matter the legislation, no matter the attempt, the word of God still increased and multiplied to such an extent that Paul was able to preach and minister to people in jail unhindered. 
Now, that, look, I don't want to be in jail. Three hots and a cot. Free rent and board. What do you want? And you're still able to preach? Well, I don't want that kind of a prison ministry. I know, I get it. I don't know that I want that kind of a prison ministry or not either. Friends, Gamaliel was right. We looked at it several weeks ago in Acts chapter 5. When he said, if this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if, it, if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow this. You might even be found opposing God. And that's somebody on the Jewish council. And though it's easy to look around in our culture and our immediate surroundings and wonder, where's the power? Where's the explosive growth of the church? Man, I want to see some of this. Where are the converts? The promise of Jesus remains the exact same, that on the confession that Jesus is Lord, he said in Matthew chapter 16, it's on this that I will build my church. And the gates of hell, what? They will not prevail. Friends, we win. And we can look around and say, oh, but things are getting worse all the time. Have you read the book? I read the book. We win. <laughs> it gets really gooder and gooder. Well, it's getting so bad. Yeah, it's getting bad. I know it. That's going to happen also. It said in 2 Timothy 3, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeah, there are bad things happening. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4 says, That day cannot come except two things happen. First, there's going to be a great falling away. Well, that's a drag. Oh, yeah, they used to go to church, used to serve the Lord. They don't even, they don't even know if Jesus is real or not anymore. Yeah, there's going to be a great falling away. And the second thing, that man of sin must be revealed. Those things have to happen before the end. Okay, those are not good things. But you want to know what else is going to go on at the exact same time? Acts 2, 17 says, In the latter days, We've been in the latter days for 2,000 years. <laughs> he said, in the latter days, at the same time all this bad stuff is going on, I'm going. here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, and your sons have visions. Young men will have visions. And friends, at the same time that all this bad stuff is going on, sure it's going on. But bless God, I can be a part of something that's bigger than that. You know, there's the old limerick that says, two men looked through bars, one saw mud, the other saw stars. It's the same window. What do we choose to look at? We can either choose to look at how terrible everything is. Yeah, sure it is. But man, bless God, things are going on. Things are happening. Good things are happening. And what we choose to look at, man, it's... it's matter of what we choose to look at. Oh, this is so bad. It, okay. It's quit watching Jerry Springer all the time. Herod's on Jerry Springer. Man, go read your Bible. Because the last word of this whole book is unhindered. And Ezekiel looked at chapter 47 and he said, you know, there's just this little Looks like he's got this water leak. Somebody punched a pipe with a nail my first time. Construction job in New Orleans. My first nail I drove. Oh, man. Right into a water line. And Ezekiel looks up under there and says, Oh, somebody punched the water. Robert's been on the job. He said, I followed that. Oh, man. That's, that's turned into a river. And I touched my ankle. 
mounts up to my knees, mounts up to my waist, and finally he said in 47.5, there's a river that I could not pass through because the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And friends, that's what God's doing. That's what God's doing in the earth. Well, I don't see it happening. Well, lift up your eyes, you know. He said, when you see all the bad stuff happen, lift up your eyes because your Redeemer's drawing nigh. That's good news there, too. He invites us to be a part of the rising tide of the kingdom of God. And he does this by inviting you into a relationship with the Father through the sacrifice that he made for us on Calvary. We can look at it and say, well, I try to be good. I try to do right things. It's not about being good. It's not about being good. Because you don't go to heaven because you're good, and you don't go to hell because you're bad. There's a problem here, and that problem is our sin. We have broken God's law. And that puts us contrary to him. We have built a wall between us and God. We said, we don't want to have anything to do with you. But God wanted a relationship with us so much that he sent the only one who was able to take down that wall. There's a price that has to be paid to take that wall down. And Jesus paid that price on Calvary, and he paid every penny of it. Now, every debt that we have of every sin has been paid for. And now all that remains, the wall's gone. Now all that remains is Jesus. And the question is, do you know Jesus Christ? That's all that matters now. Do you know Jesus? Because in knowing Him, John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the Father, and they know the only Son that you have sent. Do you know Jesus Christ? It is as simple and it is as eternal as, God, I confess, I sin. I have sinned. I have built a wall between me and you, and I'm really sorry about that. Would you please forgive me? I believe that Jesus died to take down my wall, and I receive His death as your gift to me. God, save me. I confess you as Lord. Forgive me of my sins and live with me. And the chapter ends, verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so that kind of sets the stage for next week. It ends this section. Will Saul become Paul? Will the church continue to grow? Tune in next year for the exciting conclusion of it. What's going to happen? You can read ahead if you want to. FYI. But friends, God is calling us into a relationship of dependence on Him, recognition of the work that He has done, is doing, and is going to continue to do in our lives and in this world of real-life transformation, continuing change of who we are into who He is, calling us to multiply who He is making us to be into the lives of other people. And that's going to continue all the way to the day of the Lord Jesus. And when He appears, 1 John 3, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know this. When He appears, we'll be like Him. Father, thank you so much for the love that you have for us. God, thank you that you invaded our reality with your your eternality. And Father, invited us into a relationship with you through Jesus. Thank you. And Father, the difficulties that we've seen, that we have seen so far in the book of Acts, with the persecutions, the sufferings, the executions, 
Father, as we look to Psalm 73 this next week and we see that in the Old Testament too and we recognize that that's, that's the way of the cross. Father, help us to also see that in the middle of all of it, you cause your word to grow and increase. And Father, that's what we want to focus on. That tree, that, that mustard seed that starts out the smallest of all of them but grows so large it envelops the whole world. Father, that's the kingdom that we want to be involved in. That's the kingdom we want to give our lives to. Father, for those who have never accepted Jesus, would you please minister to them in terms they can understand, showing them their need just for Jesus. All the, all the sin's been dealt with. Everything's been dealt with. Now all that remains is Jesus. Father, would you please do this? I bless them.